0: So I love dealing with otitis and I'm sure that is why I am a dermatologist because I do find otoscopy, whether it's handheld or video otoscopy and working up these cases can just be so rewarding. And one thing I wanted to talk to you guys about today on this episode of the podcast is unilateral otitis because I have had several cases where they'll come in being treated over and over and over again for a unilateral otitis. And that can be very different as far as the primary cause of a persistent unilateral otitis compared to, say, um, a recurrent bilateral otitis from allergies. It's not that it can't happen. Sure, you can have a pet have allergies and maybe for some reason there is damage to one particular ear that causes that ear to predominantly become infected. But traditionally, if you look at classic unilateral otitis cases, so for example, a pet is eight or nine and has never had any history of otitis, doesn't have any other signs of dermatologic issues like paw licking or chewing or scooting or scratching or any of those things, I'm going to approach that case differently than a pet who's since they were 2 been breaking out with otitis, you know, on and off for in both ears for a long period of time. When we're dealing with a unilateral otitis that is very persistent, so doesn't respond to treatment or responds, but as soon as it's discontinued, seems to come back and it always predominates in one ear. In my mind, there are three main things I want to rule out as a primary cause of that disease. Because remember, if we go back to like our PSVP system, we need to know the primary cause of a secondary issue. So yes, yeast and bacteria are problematic and we need to treat those in cases of otitis, but we have to figure out the primary cause so that we can prevent that infection from coming back and becoming really resistant and nasty. So in a case of unilateral otitis, especially if the pet has not had a history of otitis in the past, and doesn't show any other dermatologic signs, I want to rule out a mass, like a polyp, adenoma, adenocarcinoma, a foreign body, and we'll specifically see a lot of times that be plant material or grassons, um, or otitis media, which can occur from either of those things, a mass or a foreign body, or sometimes for some reason will develop secondary to other issues that have occurred. And yes, you can have a notitis externa that then develops into notitis media. Um, But those are the three main things that I start thinking about in those cases. So, When we approach these cases, this is where having a really good look into that deep ear canal can be so vital. So, of course, as a dermatologist, I love videotoscopy. It allows me to magnify the image. It allows me to use special tools down the scope, like I can, you know, get more... I can get more specific with my flushing. So if I put a red rubber tube down the scope, I can know exactly where I'm putting that tube in relation to where I expect the eardrum to be. I can flush, flush, flush. I can suck it back and then get a really good visualization into that deeper canal. Um, But it also lets me use other really cool tools down the scope. So um, I can use forceps so that I can remove, you know, things that might look like foreign material or if I need to remove clumps of hair because it's obstructing view or it's just covered in pus, I can do that. Um, one of my favorite tools is to, u- to use is a polypectomy snare. So that essentially looks like a cool little lasso that I can feed through my videotoscopy unit and I can lasso around things like big masses or foreign bodies and then tighten it up and pull it out. Um, so there's lots of really good benefit to videotoscopy. But I do understand that not every client is going to be referred. Um, they're either not going to want to be referred. They're financially not going to be able to be referred. Or maybe you're in a situation where there's not a dermatologist near you that has a videotoscopy unit. So even being able to do a good sedated flush, so a really good heavy sedation or general anesthesia and going in with a handheld scope and you can take, I, if I do a handheld scope, deep flush, I'll take an eight French uh, red rubber tube. I'll cut it short. I will have a bowl of sterile saline next to me and I'll take like a three uh, CC syringe and I'll just fill up that, uh, syringe and then I'll connect it to my tube and I will just flush suck, flush suck, flush suck over and over and over and over again. And essentially I am looking until that fluid I am pulling out of the ear is no longer cloudy or opaque and then I am able to get a deeper look into that ear canal. So even if you don't have the ability for videotoscopy, you can still do this through a handheld unit, but you are going to need the patient to be under very heavy sedation and honestly, preferably general anesthesia, because if that eardrum is ruptured, which in many of these cases it is... The eustachian tube attaches to the middle ear. So if you put a lot of fluid that gets into the middle ear, it can travel down the eustachian tube, also called the auditory tube, and actually go into the posterior pharynx and you can risk them starting to cough or get aspiration. Um, So it's great to have them intubated so you can protect the airway and be safe in that aspect and also control how deep they are. But just the ability to go down there when they're more comfortable, because these patients are often very painful, and um, being able to appropriately flush out the ear, and being able to get a better visualization into that deep ear canal. So then if you find something like a foreign body or a mass, you can try to remove it if you feel comfortable with that. Um, even through a handheld scope, you can try to use something like alligator forceps. And this will just allow you to try to remove something like a mass, to debulk it, to Potentially send it in for histopathology because there are various types of masses, polyps, adenoma, adenocarcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma, and we can get a better idea based on what that mass is if there needs to be any further treatment. Um, even if it's like a mass that you're not going to feel comfortable to take out or it's not, you know, an option or it's just really too deep for you to try to remove it, then at least you'll know the cause of that otitis. And you could send them in to a surgeon potentially and have something like a ticaboo done if it's necessary, or go send them to get advanced imaging, like a CT scan to see if they do need to do something like surgery. So it's just really extremely important to know that primary cause. In a unilateral otitis, for me, foreign body mass plus or minus otitis media until proven otherwise. And I've had Cases where I've gone down with my scope and I think there's going to be a mass, and we won't find one, but we'll just find a really nasty infection in the middle ear. So, dealing with otitis media, no matter what the primary cause is, ideally we want to try to get a culture of the middle ear because whatever we find in the external canal it can be very different than what's in that middle ear. So the way that we do a middle ear culture is we can actually take that red rubber tube and then if the eardrum's already ruptured, um, and you in, or you can perform a myringotomy if you feel comfortable with that, but you're going to insert that red rubber tube into the middle ear, have some sterile that just like you flush the external ear canal out with, but have some sterile saline separate in a different syringe. Use a different tube. You want this to be a new tube that's not contaminated. And you're just going to push the fluid into the middle ear. And then you're going to aspirate that fluid out of the middle ear. And that is all that you're going to put in your culture at. You don't want to stick it down the middle, the ear, because you're going to get it contaminated with stuff from the external ear. Um, you don't need a whole ton of fluid. Inevitably, you're going to get some fluid that doesn't aspirate back. Um, You're always going to get a smaller amount usually than you put in. And then that's what you're going to culture. If you go to treat an otitis media based on culture, it's going to be extremely important you treat it for the appropriate amount of time. So when we treat an otitis media, most people, whether dermatologists or neurologists, are going to want to treat them based on culture, if we can get it, for a minimum of sometimes i hear six but mostly eight up to 12 weeks so these are not cases that you treat for two weeks and you're done i've actually seen cases flare and get Really bad neurologic signs um, if they're not treated appropriately and taken off antimicrobials too early. So I treat them for at least eight weeks. I usually check them at like the three, four week mark just to see how things are healing and how we're doing. And they continue on antibiotics at least for eight weeks, if not longer, depending on how that eardrum grows back and the clinical signs of the patient. So it is really important you make sure that you're treating them appropriate enough. Clinical signs that a pet might have something like an otitis media or something bothering the middle ear, Horner syndrome. So kind of remember your classic signs of Horner syndrome, meiosis, ophthalmus, uh, ptosis. Uh, you can also get things like facial paralysis, a head tilt to the side um, of the otitis media or where something like a mass is even sometimes nystagmus, um, ataxia. So these are things that are going to be really important to have something like some form of otitis media higher on your list. Um, So I hope that's helpful. I just want to make sure when you're seeing these unilateral otitis cases, different things move in your head as a possible cause of that. I pretty much need to rule out something like a foreign body or a mask before I'll feel comfortable saying maybe it's due to allergies, especially if they're very persistent um, infections that have just continuously only affected one ear. And some of them, again, you don't know until you get something like advanced imaging with CT or have video tasks be done or potentially both of those. So they can be extremely difficult cases, but cases that we can make a really big difference for. If topics like this are things you like to nerd out over, I definitely suggest checking out The Derm Nerds. It's my online community where we really dive into these cases. I present cases like this um, with images through PowerPoint every week. We pick a case of the week and go more in depth with it and you can post your own cases, topics, articles within that group and really it's just a, a really awesome community where we get to dive deeper. If you love the podcast, it's essentially like the podcast on steroids, no pun intended as a dermatologist that uses a lot of steroids, um, but it's really just an awesome community to really get deeper into topics like these.